Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are back with our series about home theaters after a brief intermission. But hey, that happens sometimes with theaters, right? Anyway, so far we have covered the basics of visuals with a breakdown of stuff like resolution, high dynamic range or HDR, uh, OLED versus LED versus QLED, home projectors, and more. Uh, We also talked about surround sound and the basic variations that you can have with surround sound. But then I ran out of time before I could get to the next bit, which is subwoofers. And I talked about them a little in the last episode in this series, but I didn't really explain what it is they do and why they're so important for home theater setups. All right, let's talk about subwoofers really quickly. Now, the job of any speaker is to project out a certain band of sound frequencies, which we you know, experience as different pitches, right? Higher frequencies are higher pitches, lower frequencies are much lower pitches. But how do speakers do this? Well, if you remember our rabbit hole of what sound is from earlier in this series, you know that sound is vibration and that typically we hear sound as it moves through the air. The vibration in this case becomes a series of fluctuating changes in air pressure, which propagate outward from the source of the sound. And when these fluctuations encounter the eardrums inside our ears, they cause our eardrums to vibrate. Those vibrations transfer to our inner ear, thanks to some very tiny bones, and then through a couple of other steps that I'm not going to go to here because I've covered this before, our brains eventually pick up signals from our inner ear and then interpret that as sound. Now, the reason I even said any of that is that a speaker creates sound kind of in a reverse process from how our ears pick up sound. So you've got an electric signal, And this is the signal that carries the sound information in it. We've encoded sound into an electric signal, and then we're going to decode the electric signal to recreate the sound. Typically, this signal goes to an electromagnet, which is essentially a driver that can pull and push depending on how or if current is flowing through the electromagnet. This is inside the speaker. It's usually attached to the speaker cone itself, And there is a diaphragm covering the speaker cone, the end of the cone. This is the part that you see when you look at the front of a speaker, those big round things. That's the diaphragm on the end of the cone. Um, Then you've got uh, this part of the back of the speaker where there's a permanent magnet. That's your typical way. You could have it the other way where the permanent magnet is on the cone and the electromagnets in the back of the speaker, but more frequently, The voice coil, as it's called, is attached to the cone itself. So when the polarity of the electromagnet changes, it exerts a magnetic force that then interacts with the magnetic field of the permanent magnet. So if those polarities match, right, if the electromagnet's magnetic field has a north pole pointed toward the permanent magnet's north pole, then they repel each other, right? Because like Uh, magnetic charge repels. So the cone gets pushed away from the permanent magnet and it's pushed forward out from the speaker. If the polarities are the opposite of each other, like one's North Pole and one's South Pole, the electromagnet is pulled back toward 
the permanent magnet inside. Now the permanent magnet, its magnetic field's not gonna change because it's permanent, it's, it's in a stationary position, but by reversing the, uh, the flow of electricity through the coil, you can change the direction of the magnetic field on the coil uh, in the electromagnet and thus have this interaction. So the result is that the speaker's diaphragm gets moved in and out, and this happens really, really fast. Now, the diaphragm consequently causes air to move, and it creates those fluctuations in air pressure. As the diaphragm pushes outward, it compresses the air directly in front of the speaker. If it moves inward, it pulls on the air. So you get these little fluctuations of air pressure that when they encounter our ears, we experience as sound. To me, it is so cool that we can take sound, we can transmit sound through a microphone, which is, by the way, the exact same thing, but in reverse and then be able to play it out on a speaker this way and just have this material, this diaphragm material, just through that vibration, we can recreate any sound that humans can hear. That still blows my mind. Anyway, that's a really high level way of how speakers work. So most speakers can replicate a fairly decent range of frequencies, but the lower end stuff gets pretty challenging because it requires a larger diaphragm in the speaker to produce good, powerful, low frequency effects and more power to move that big diaphragm. So larger diaphragms will have more mass. That means it takes more energy to get them to move, particularly to move enough air to make the effects you wanna make. So it might need so much energy that you could even require a, a, an extra plug to plug the speaker into, say, an external source like a like a power outlet in order to get the power you need in, to, to actually run the subwoofer. So a good sound system needs a subwoofer. That is specifically a type of speaker specifically dedicated to replicating the lower frequency sounds, those really deep bass sounds that sometimes you can actually feel more than you can hear. Now, remember I said that sound is a vibration? Well, a good subwoofer will create vibrations that you can physically feel. Uh, they might be below the threshold for human hearing, which is typically defined as anything between 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz in frequencies. They can also handle the lower frequencies that, while not sternum shaking, are lower than what your typical speaker can handle, and thus they fill out the sound that you will hear. Otherwise, you would be missing all those low, low ends. This is important not just for movies and television, but also for music. If you've ever listened to music on a cheap pair of headphones and thought, wow, this doesn't sound really that good, well, chances are one of the issues that, that those cheap headphones have is that they're not reproducing all the frequencies that are actually present in the music. So it's like you're getting a narrow slice of what the music is, not the full audio experience. Now, subwoofers don't need to be as directional as other speakers, so you don't have to have them sitting in a very specific spot in your setup the way you do with like your front left and front right and center speakers and all that kind of stuff. However, depending upon the size and shape of your home theater space, you might actually need more than one subwoofer to create the effects you want. Otherwise, you could find out that the bass distribution in your home theater setup isn't quite up to par, and that there are some maybe some dead spots in that space. Now, I've looked at a lot of surround sound speaker setups, and many of the higher end ones have two subwoofers. And I should add that these are well outside my price range. 
and probably outside most people's price range, unless you got like 10 or 12 grand just burning a hole in your very, very large pockets. But you can see things like, you know, 9.2.2 and, uh, you know, these crazy systems that, that get to a point where you're thinking, how many speakers do you actually need? Apparently for some home theater enthusiasts, it's going to always be there will never be enough speakers. Now, I think if anything, this discussion really shows that your physical space matters a lot when it comes to building out your home theater. If you want surround sound, you need the space to be able to do it, and you need to set up speakers according to which version of surround sound you're going with. That also means figuring out stuff like cable management. Now, there are wireless home theater systems where you've got like wireless speakers. Some of them are really, really good. When they first came out, wireless speakers were kind of looked down upon because the thought was that if you didn't have a physical wire connecting your components, it could not possibly deliver the same level of experience. But we've gotten a lot better with those over the years. However, you know, some systems still just use physical wires to connect everything like speakers back to the mixer. Then, uh, you know, subwoofers might need their own power cable and everything. So whichever setup you go with, you need to take all this into consideration. Cable management becomes a real high priority as you don't want to trip over cables or have unsightly wires all over the place. So that, you know, one more thing for you to keep in mind. Now, you might also think that 7.1, where you've got seven speakers plus a subwoofer, like Dolby Atmos is one of those kind of levels, although they sometimes call it 5.1.2, because you've got the five speakers of your typical surround sound setup. You've got your subwoofer, that's the one, and then you've got two Atmos speakers that are projecting above you, that's the point two. Anyway, you might think that a 7.1 setup is inherently superior to a 5.1 setup, which is far more common. But that is not necessarily the case. The quality of the tech, as in how good your mixer and receiver are, how good the speakers are, and to some degree the cables, all of that matters. But uh, that cables thing is a huge caveat because there are companies out there that market high-end cables that really don't deliver any perceptible benefit to the experience. We'll talk a lot more about it later on. In fact, really when it comes to cables, the rule of thumb is that Super cheap cables aren't great. They tend to have bad insulation, and we'll talk more about that a bit later too. But anything else is, is pretty much okay, unless you're just having to run miles of cable, in which case you might need to think more carefully about your options. Also, I should add that in the world of audio, there's this obsessive pursuit among audiophiles about going after the most pure or true replication of sound. And I get that. But I also get that a lot of that comes down to stuff that is beyond human perception and comes down to personal preference and psychology. It's subjective, in other words. Like, if you walked into a room and you were told that this room was outfitted with a high-end, extremely expensive system, and it turned out that really in the background it was just a good system, but not like a super crazy one, well, you might walk away thinking it was a life-changing experience. Like you might come away from it saying, wow, that really makes a difference. Likewise, if you were to walk into a space that had a really super high-end audio system, but you were told that you were going to be listening to a budget model, you might just think it's just okay. So typically, double-blind studies where neither the person experiencing a test nor the person administering the test actually knows what kind of system is being used, a lot of those 
show that beyond a certain level of quality, our ability to discern different distinctions diminishes quickly. So while a system might, at least by you know finely tuned measurements and specifications, say it's better, you might not ever notice it because of the limitations of human perception. So in other words, don't buy the malarkey is what I'm saying, I guess. Oh, and, and like stereo, your ability to enjoy surround sound depends upon what you're consuming. So let's say you've picked up a Blu-ray of your favorite film and you see it supports Dolby 5.1 surround sound and you've got a 5.1 system that supports Dolby. Well, that should be a pretty good experience. It should sound great. But what if you've got a 7.1 system, but the media you're looking at doesn't support 7.1, it's 5.1? Well, through technologies like Dolby Pro Logic 2X or digital sound processing, which a lot of these systems have built into them, whether it's your receiver or your media player or whatever, well, then your system can expand 5.1 soundtracks to meet the 7.1 channels. And to go into how all that works would probably require a full episode. And let me just be straight with you guys. It would also require an expert on the subject matter because it quickly goes beyond my own understanding. But in a way, it's kind of like how 4K and 8K televisions upscale video sources that aren't natively in ultra high definition. Now, one thing I have not covered is sound bars. So these are those wide horizontal speakers you find in a lot of sound setups these days. They're usually pretty short and they can typically fit directly in front of and underneath a TV screen. So if you got your TV screen on a stand, this is that bar that would sit in front of the TV and, uh, and act as a very large or very wide speaker. And it, it's an attempt to replicate the experience of surround sound through one array of speakers inside a bar instead of having a bunch of separate units mounted around a seating space. So within a sound bar are multiple speaker drivers, and some of these might be pointed so that they push sound out at an angle from the viewer. So instead of it just being like a, <laughs> an array of speakers all pointed directly at you, some of them might be pointed off at an angle with the idea being that the sound is supposed to bounce off the walls to either side of you and then come at you from a different direction to simulate surround sound that way. So instead of mounting a speaker, you know, a certain number of degrees off to your right and to your left, you're using the soundbar to bounce sound off walls so that it comes to you that way anyway. So the channel that might be meant for the front left, for example, can beam off to the left of the viewer, hit a wall, bounce back, and hit you at the right angle. Of course, we all know that the law of reflection tells us that the angle the sound will take after the bounce is equal to the incoming angle which means that the distance between the soundbar and your walls will matter. So if your television happens to be closer to one side of the room than the other, like if it's a little closer to the right than it is to the left, well, that means that the channels from the left and right are going to be bouncing off at slightly different points on their respective walls. So you might not get a really immersive surround sound effect. Like I have a soundbar in my setup, but my setup also, my living room's weird, y'all. It is open to the dining room and kitchen on the left side, and the right side ends at a wall with windows on it. So that means that, you know, stuff can bounce off to the right and hit that wall. But if it goes off to the left, it's going all the way toward the dining room and kitchen. So there's no there's no wall for it to bounce off of. So I don't get that effect. 
in addition, some soundbars even come with speakers that aim at an angle up toward the ceiling to get you that Dolby Atmos effect. So the sound reflects off your ceiling and back down toward where you're sitting. And generally speaking, soundbars are much easier to set up because, I mean, there's usually only two components to the system. There's the soundbar and there's a subwoofer. Some subwoofers also serve as uh, receivers, which we'll talk more about in a bit. So like I, my system is that way. My subwoofer is also my receiver. And so I just have two units and that makes it really simple. They can provide much better sound than just a television alone can by itself. And in the right room, it can be a really immersive experience. Not so much for mine, but you know, it's okay. Um, if you aren't lucky enough to have a symmetrical space perfectly set up for a home theater, then they don't deliver quite that surround sound experience you might be hoping for. So again, the space you are in is going to have a big impact on your experience, and it's really worth taking a good look at what you're working with before you go on a very expensive shopping spree. I would recommend getting someone from a company that builds out home theater systems to consult with you on it. However, I hesitate to make that just a blanket recommendation because, I mean, you also need to do your own research because I'm, I'm not saying that everyone out there is going to try and steer you toward the most expensive system you could possibly buy because they happen to work on commission, but it's a possibility and it's good to be aware of it. Now, I think that's a pretty good stopping point for audio in general, although we'll obviously touch on it some more later. So we're going to talk about receivers after we come back from this quick break. So a lot of home theater setups include an AV receiver, an audio video receiver, and the receiver really has a couple of big jobs. One of those is that it acts as an amplifier. So it takes audio signals from various media sources and it boosts those signals, it amplifies them before sending them on to the appropriate speakers. Uh, the output of audio signals from a media source might not be strong enough to really power the speakers sufficiently. So that's why you need an amplifier. But there's another really important job that the receiver does, and, and that's that it acts kind of like a, a media switch. So if you have a lot of components connecting to your home theater system, let's say you've got an antenna and maybe a cable connection and maybe a video game console and perhaps a different type of set-top box that's providing content. Maybe it's a Blu-ray player or something. Um, or maybe it's you know a streaming service uh, box or something. Then this can act as like the switch between all those different sources so that you can have the right stuff being sh sent to your television screen and to all your speakers. So the AV receiver kind of acts like a nexus point for all of that stuff. You would plug all the inputs into the AV receiver, and then you would use a single connection to connect your AV receiver to something like your television or a different one to connect to your speakers. That way, when you want to watch, say, a UHD Blu-ray, you switch the AV receiver to that setting, to whatever you know input device is you're using to watch that Blu-ray on. And the receiver essentially makes all the proper connections between your Blu-ray player and your television and speakers. Or let's say you want to watch cable TV. Well, you would switch to that setting on your AV receiver, and then 
the cable feed would be what's going to your television and to your speakers. And one big benefit to this, and it sounds small, but trust me, it's really nice, is that the AV receiver will plug into one port in your television, one input. Typically, you do this using an HDMI cable, which we will talk about a little bit later. And so let's say you plug your AV receiver into HDMI port number one on your television and everything else is going through your AV receiver to your TV. That means when you switch from Blu-ray to cable on your AV receiver, you don't also have to switch the input on your television. Now, I know that sounds small, but trust me, I have seen so many situations in which someone was not using an AV receiver. So they had all of their different components connecting to their television directly. And then they have to fuss around with a remote control and try to figure out which input on their television they needed to select in order to make something specific happen. Like, let's say they switch from playing a video game and now they want to connect to like a Roku or something. They would have to go through and choose the correct input setting in order to do that because they had each of these things connecting to their televisions directly. That can get a little frustrating. It gets a little clunky. So reducing the number of times you have to switch inputs on your television is a pretty nice thing. Also, receivers tend to have radio tuners. I mean, they, they are receivers. They have radio tuners in them. And sometimes they have satellite radio tuners. So either way, you have an added benefit there. You've got a device that can pick up radio signals and you can listen to radio on your home theater, you know, in case you ever want to do that. AV receivers also decode the surround sound signal formats that are on various forms of media. And then that's how it, they make sure that the right speakers are playing the right sounds. That way you're getting, you know, the front left channel is going to the front left speaker. It's not like suddenly going to the center speaker or something. That's another important job receivers do. Now, there are some folks who do forego the AV receiver. Typically, they don't have surround sound setups. As a result, they might have you know, simple stereo speakers hooked up to their television. So it's not like an AV receiver is an absolute requirement, but for a lot of serious home theater enthusiasts, they consider it a critical component of their setup. Now let's switch over and talk about media sources. So you got your television or your projector and screen, you've got your sound system, you got your AV receiver ready to connect everything to, you know, those other components. So what are you putting on this thing? Like, how are you getting the actual media to consume? Well, the good news is you have way more options today than you did when ultra high definition was first becoming a thing. Um, since 4K TVs are now kind of the standard in most most stores, like if you look at their televisions, 4K is by far the thing that takes up the most shelf space. Well, the first 4K TVs hit store shelves back in 2012, but at that point, there really wasn't any content for 4K TVs. Like you could still watch HD content, high definition content, or even standard definition, but you couldn't find much 4K content. Buying a 4K TV was more like future-proofing your home theater because you couldn't really enjoy content on it right out of the box. And this has happened multiple times before. Like when HD TV first became a thing, there actually wasn't that much HD content to watch on that either. You could find like an HD TV promotional channel that would just run stuff like nature scenes and maybe a couple of clips from like specific sporting events or 
a sunset or sunrise. Like there were a lot of these kind of standard things that were meant to show off how beautiful the screen was, but for real content, there was a distinct lack. So there was a bit of a gap between having the capability to see stuff in higher resolution and actually having any higher resolution media to watch. The first pay TV provider in the United States to offer a limited selection of 4K content was the satellite TV provider DirecTV. That was in 2014. The first UHD Blu-ray players went on sale in North America in 2016, and luckily there were some media companies making 4K Blu-ray discs as well, because again, you know, it drives home the fact you need all the pieces in the puzzle to match up to get the experience you want. You can have a 4K TV and nothing to watch on it, or you could have a 4K Blu-ray player, but if no one's making 4K Blu-ray discs, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good. I mean, you could still probably watch standard Blu-rays, but, you know, same thing with stuff like HDR, high dynamic range. If any piece of the puzzle doesn't support HDR, then you're not going to be able to take advantage of that technology. These days, a lot of the 4K content comes from streaming services. So... This means that your home theater will need a connection to the internet, either wirelessly or hardwired. And a lot of televisions these days can connect directly to a range of streaming sources without any additional equipment. You know, the, the so-called smart TVs that have these, these, uh, these interfaces built into them. Uh, the television will have a user interface that lets you select stuff like HBO Max, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, Disney Plus, Apple TV, YouTube, you know, these are the types of services. And there are a few others that carry 4K content. Now, in some cases, in order to access that 4K content, you got to actually pay a little bit more than the standard subscription to those services. So, for example, here in North America, if you wanted to watch 4K content on Netflix, you would need to shell out the $18 a month for a premium subscription plan in order to get that. Other services like Disney Plus include 4K content that even has HDR support built into it right there at the basic subscription price. But you do just have to have the system capable of, you know, taking advantage of that. But you can you can do it right out of the box. You don't you don't have to subscribe to a higher tier of service. This also means that whatever device is connecting to the service also needs to be compatible with that 4K standard. Now, if it's your television, then that's probably covered, right? If you bought a 4K TV and it has these uh, these interfaces built in so that you can actually directly access, say, Netflix through your television without any other device needed, then you're good. But if it's an additional set-top box, like if it's a Roku, then that device needs to be 4K compatible as well in order to be able to watch this stuff. Most of the more recent devices do meet that requirement, but if you happen to be sitting on an older one, it's always a good idea to take a quick look online just to see what resolutions it supports. Um, if it's fairly recent, you might be okay. For example, Roku started offering devices with 4K support back in October 2015, though not all devices Roku has made since 2015 are 4K compatible. So again, making sure that everything meets the minimum standard that you're hoping for is important. In addition to that, modern video game consoles are 4K compatible. Uh, this started with the PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X and Xbox One S models. Uh, the Xbox Series X and the PlayStation 5 
actually have 8K capability. So if you want to really future-proof your home theater and you want a video game console to be part of it, you could get one or both of those. Uh, good luck. They can still be pretty hard to find in most markets. Uh, the PS5 in particular is tricky to find. Game consoles like the PS5 and Xbox Series X also can serve as streaming devices. So if your TV doesn't have that capability natively built into it, and you don't want to buy another set-top box, consoles can pick up that slack. All right, so let's recap for a second. Your home theater is going to need media sources, you know, something to watch. You can get some 4K material through cable or satellite feeds, but it's a pretty limited amount. So depending upon your provider, you'll have some stuff there that will look and sound great on your system. Uh, some providers might only have on-demand like pay videos that you can access that that can take advantage of those sort of systems. You can also stream content from the internet to your home theater, though I should add that will require at least a pretty decent internet connection of at least 25 megabits per second. You probably want to find a plan that also has a really high data cap or no data cap because 4K video can eat up a lot of that data allowance. Uh, Netflix estimated back in late 2020 that if you watched an hour of 4K video, it's equivalent to consuming about seven gigabytes of data. That's just one hour of content. So if you're someone who plans to use a home theater a lot and you're going to lean heavily on streaming services to provide 4K content, you could be bumping up against some data caps. Uh, like Comcast has a data cap that seems incredibly high. It's 1.2 terabytes. That's a huge amount of data. But if you're a home theater fiend, you can hit that after 40 hours of watching UHD content. So if you're going to be doing it a lot, that's something to take into consideration. Uh, I think we can now switch over to finally talk about cables. And in a way, I think that cables has become a little less confusing over time, maybe by a little bit. So we'll do a quick recap on audio and video cables to see where we came from, because, I mean, some home theater systems still use these legacy cables because they still include legacy components. If you have like an old VCR, for example, and you want to be able to watch VCR cassettes, then you may need some of these old cables. Um, it also could probably mean that you're going to need some adapters in order to connect these older devices to your newer television sets, because a lot of manufacturers stopped including those ports. Uh, keep in mind, the, the like I said, the stuff I'm talking about right now, or the, the I'll start talking about, is really mostly obsolete. Um, so this is more for completion's sake than anything else. First off, let's mention coaxial cables, because these are pretty common. These are those cables with the copper connectors. They typically have black cladding. They're fairly thick and, and not always super flexible. Uh, you usually use these to connect from your cable outlet to a cable box or maybe a satellite connector. And you might even use one to connect from the cable box to your television. Uh, these cables send audio and video signals, both. However, they're really only good at carrying resolutions of up to 1080 on them, so they can carry up to HDTV quality, but not 4K. Uh, and that's a problem. It means that you have to have a different kind of connection if you want to get 4K quality uh, video streaming 
to your uh, your system. But let's talk about some uh, other types of audio and video cables. So way back in the day, when you got something like you know a game console, you would typically have a cable that would end in three connectors. And I'm starting with RCA connectors. I could go even further back, but <laughs> we have to draw the line somewhere. So you would have three connectors, one that was red, one that was white, and one that was yellow, and they all had little like copper plugs sticking out of them. These were RCA connector cables, so-called because the company RCA developed them, and the red and white cables were actually just for audio. The red cable carried the audio channel for the right speaker, and the white cable carried the audio channel for the left speaker. That left the yellow cable to carry all the video signal all by its lonesome, and we called it composite video. This yellow cable only had the capability to carry video signals of standard definition, so that meant it was either 480 or 576, depending on whether you were in like the United States or, you know, Europe. So using this cable, even if the source somehow could put out HD content, the cable would not be able to carry that to a television. The best you could manage is standard definition resolution. Then we get S-video cables. These were an improvement over a composite video. It was a single, again, a single cable, but it was not an enormous leap in quality. They could still only carry standard definition resolution signals, so still you're limited to 480 or 576 in resolution, but the composite video cable would crunch all the video information into a single signal across a single wire. S-video cables actually had two separate wires to carry information to the display, and you would have one wire carrying the information that relates to the color of the signal, and the other wire would carry the information relating to the brightness of the signal. And by separating this out, the S-video cable could deliver a higher quality set of signals to a television. Now, the resolution wasn't like magically better, but the quality of the colors and the subtle shifts in brightness were better. So you did get a better picture, just not necessarily a more detailed picture, uh, at least not detailed in forms of in the form of resolution. This is another reminder that resolution isn't the end all be all. It's a very important part, but it's just one component as to, you know, the quality of an image. S-video cables only carried video information, so you still needed separate cables to carry audio to speakers, so those white and red wires would stick around. Also, S-video didn't get a real good chance to take off because of a superior technology that came out around the same time. And I'll talk more about what that was after we take this quick break. Okay, one other set of cables that had a, a, a fair amount of popularity briefly at longer in the home theater space for real enthusiasts were component video cables. And I know this gets confusing. You've got composite video. That's that RCA cable that had the yellow end to it that carried all the video. Then you had component video cables. These, in the United States anyway, came in sets of three similar to RCA composite connector cables, but instead of red, white, and yellow, these were red, blue, and green. And unlike composite and S-video cables, 
These could carry high definition video signals. So you could actually get up to 1080 resolution using these cables, assuming again that all the other components in your system were compatible, that you had a HDTV source of media and you had an HDTV compatible television. They did not carry audio signals. So again, you needed to have separate cables to carry audio if you wanted to listen to something more than just out of the television speakers. And I should add that this was the common form factor here in North America. Now, in other parts of the world, component video used different kinds of ports and cables, to, but to go through all of that would be way too much. So we're just going to leave it for now. Now, you might think that because video signals relate back to RGB, being red, green, and blue, and that you use combinations of those colors to create all the other colors with video, that that would mean these cables were each carrying signals for red, green, and blue, right? Not quite. Um, it was a little different than that. It, it did not quite break it down to that level. So instead, you had one cable that carried the brightness information for the picture, so the luminosity or luma. And it also carried some synchronization information, but we won't get into all the technical details there. Another cable carried information about the difference between the luma, the luminosity or brightness, and the blue signal. And then the other cable would do the same thing, but for the red signal. So the difference between red and luma. And combining all of these together, you could create signals that would result in high definition video images that could reproduce all the colors, which is pretty neat. But once again, you would need different cables to carry audio signals, right? And while you could go with the old left and right RCA connectors for stereo, there were other options. Now, I really liked component video cables back in the day, just to stay on that for a second. Uh, they were great for handling analog 1080 signals to televisions. That is important. They were for analog uh, signals, not digital. But the industry would get behind a totally different technology for a couple of reasons. And um, I'll, I'll go into all of that in just a minute. But quick note on audio cables. We talked about the RCA connector types with the white and red for left and right channels. But obviously that isn't sufficient if you want something like surround sound. So to get surround sound, you might use coax digital S slash PDIF cables which can be easy to confuse with RCA cables because they look kind of similar. I mean, they don't have the red and white ends the way RCA cables do, but they the, the plug part looks really similar. However, these are capable of handling signals for surround sound systems, so you might use these to connect your receiver to your output devices. Then you've got an optical TOS link digital cable. So these cables provide the same sort of you know, audio quality as coax cables do, except they use fiber optics rather than a copper or, you know, gold or whatever connection. These are good over short distances. Uh, the, uh, by short, I mean like 10 feet or less. The longer the cable, the less performance you tend to get out of it. It might actually take you a bit of distance to notice the difference, but you do have a decline in signal performance as the length of the cable increases. Uh, at one time, they were pretty much the height of audio cables for home theater systems, and any serious home theater enthusiast was probably using optical digital cables to connect to their various devices so that they could get the best audio output. There are also then speaker wires. Uh, these typically come in twisted pairs. Uh, each speaker has a negative port and a positive port, and you want to connect the speaker wires accordingly. 
with your negative lead going to the negative port and the positive lead going to the positive port. This is called connecting speakers in phase. Uh, if you were to connect speakers out of phase, meaning that at least one of the speakers would be wired wrong with the wrong leads connected to the wrong ports, then your system can end up eliminating certain frequencies of sound. Now, that might not be blatantly obvious to you in the moment while you're listening to stuff, but it would affect the overall experience. So it's good to take your time and get that right if you're using wired speakers. All right, now let's talk about HDMI. So HDMI stands for High Definition Multimedia Interface, and this type of cable can carry both audio and video signals. So you don't have to split them up the way you do those previous ones I was talking about. However, there are a few different kinds of HDMI that have come out over the years, and they aren't all equal. See, uh, the HDMI standard has evolved as our video capabilities have also evolved, and so older cables don't necessarily support the latest technologies. So there are four different sets of specifications for HDMI cables as defined by the HDMI Forum Technical Working Group, and I'm sure their parties are spectacular. And those specifications are, in order, you have standard HDMI, which can carry up to 1080i video resolution with a re refresh rate of 30 hertz. Uh, if you need a refresh on refresh rates, you can listen to the first episode in this series that published earlier. I go into it there. Then you have high-speed HDMI, which upped the ante to 4K resolution, but with a refresh rate of just around 30 hertz. Then you've got premium high-speed HDMI. That's up to 4K resolution with support for high dynamic range, or HDR, and a refresh rate of around 60 hertz. And finally, you've got ultra-high-speed HDMI that has support for resolutions of up to 10K with HDR at 120 hertz, or you could do 4K video with a refresh rate of up to 240 hertz. This, by the way, is another reason why it was important to pay attention to what your television can do, because, again, your TV might be capable of doing certain things like having a 240 hertz refresh rate, but if the cable you use doesn't support that at that specific resolution, you're never going to get it. So another important thing to keep in mind. So in that sense, uh, the type of cable you buy absolutely does matter. I mean, like if your cable is older and it doesn't support certain formats, you're not going to be able to experience them. So if you have a 4K setup, really, you probably want a premium high speed HDMI cable or ultra high speed. You want one of those two. If you're looking at the HDMI version designation, like, you know, if it says HDMI 1.3 or 1.4, what you want is HDMI 2.0 to, to cover your basic needs for 4K. That means that it meets the specifications for premium high-speed HDMI because they happen to fall online. If you get HDMI 2.1 cables, then you're good for ultra high-speed HDMI. You have future-proofed your home theater for the foreseeable future, or at least the near future. I shouldn't say foreseeable because things change so fast. But again, remember, the performance you get out of your home theater is, again, going to depend upon the weakest link. I know I keep nailing that home. I know I'm like a broken record, but it is the most important thing to keep in mind, because if you trick everything else out, you're still not going to get the experience you want if that one component is not matching everything else. So if your TV is a 4K television, then an HDMI 2.1 cable 
could be overkill unless again, you just really want that super fast refresh rate. In which case I don't, I don't understand you unless, unless you're watching a lot of sports. If you're watching a lot of sports, high refresh rate, I get, but in all other, I can't stand it. (laughs) Otherwise, maybe that's just my own bias. All right. So why did the industry adopt HDMI? I mentioned that, you know, they really got behind that and component cables kind of got left behind. Well, part of the reason was that there was this transition from analog to digital and HDMI supports digital, which is all zeros and ones and component uh, video supported analog, which is a continuous signal sent through a wire. These are two different things. But another big reason is that you know, HDMI cable is really versatile because it can carry all sorts of information across it, not just, you know, audio or video signals. And it's also fully capable of covering both video and audio transmission at the same time. So that makes it way simpler to use than than setups that require separate cables for audio and for video. Cable management gets way easier if you're dealing with just HDMI. But another really big reason why the industry got behind HDMI is because of a different technology called HDCP that stands for High Bandwidth Digital Content Protection. And if you think that name makes it sound like it's DRM or Digital Rights Management, you win a cookie. So the purpose of this technology is to prevent unauthorized copying of protected material. And the technology prevents media that has been HDCP encrypted from being played on unauthorized devices meaning gadgets that could potentially copy HDCP content. So here's kind of how it works from a really high level. Let's say you've got two devices connected via HDMI and device number one is a media streaming device and device number two is a media capture device. Maybe it saves stuff to a hard drive or burns it to an optical disc or whatever. It doesn't really matter. Device number one, before sending any media to device number two, does a quick check to see if device two is equipped to copy HDCP material. And if device number one figures out that that is the case, then you end up getting a fail message like content could not be displayed on this device. And it's that built-in DRM that really got the industry behind it. And for that reason, there were a lot of home theater enthusiasts in the HDTV era who stuck with component video cables for as long as possible because it meant that you weren't limited in how you were consuming your media. There's this constant battle between the consumer and the industry where the consumer just wants to be able to enjoy their media on their own terms. The industry wants to control how the media can be consumed because obviously if the consumer is able to replicate the media and duplicate the, the media and, and distribute it, then that could affect the bottom line of the industry, com- you know, companies. So there's this constant back and forth. And for a lot of home theater enthusiasts, they were saying, I want to be able to enjoy the media I have purchased in any way I like. And I don't like having companies create DRM that could stand as a potential barrier. And to be fair, DRM can sometimes affect legitimate users accessing their their material that they have purchased. Like that can happen. We've seen it happen multiple times where a bad DRM implementation actually disproportionately has a negative impact on legitimate consumers. 
And so then that leads to pirates figuring out ways to circumvent DRM protection. And ultimately, it doesn't do anyone any good. It just becomes a rule that only punishes the people who are following the rules in the first place. So that's why a lot of home theater enthusiasts, at least a certain subset of them, were really reluctant to let go of component video cables because those analog signals could not be uh, subjected to the same sort of DRM as the digital signals that were going through HDMI. And that meant that a lot of those home theater enthusiasts had to rush out there to start buying compatible equipment because a lot of uh, manufacturers stopped making you know, televisions and media devices that supported component video cables. So that meant that you might have to run out and buy like a DVD player and maybe a Blu-ray player because they weren't always compatible with each other. Uh, maybe a, a, a television and like more stuff like that before the component video cable capability just went away. So it was pretty wild. Uh, also means that a lot of like home theater enthusiasts who have been doing this for a while have a lot of legacy systems connected. Okay, I've got a little bit more to say about cables and home theaters. Before I get to that, let's take one last break. So before the break, I was telling you about HDCP and how that's a form of DRM and how a lot of home theater enthusiasts were kind of reluctant to go to HDMI cables because of that. Um, that whole technology came out of Intel. And I should add that that HDCP encryption has long since been cracked. Like people were able to crack that encryption years ago. Intel says they suspect it was done through brute force. So in other words, someone just dedicated an enormous amount of time working through all the different possible combinations to break that encryption and eventually hit on the right one. Now, hardly anyone bothers with circumventing HDCP at this point, because honestly, the way we consume media has fundamentally changed over the past decade. When HDMI was first coming out like 20 years ago, we were firmly in the realm of purchasing media like DVDs and Blu-rays and that kind of thing. Maybe occasionally getting an on-demand video through our, our provider, like a cable provider or a satellite provider. But mostly we were buying physical media, like or we were renting them from places like, you know, Blockbuster. Do you remember Blockbuster? If if you want a reminder of Blockbuster, I actually have a a series on Blockbuster in tech stuff. So go and search the archives. That was a fun one to do. However, these days we get more of our content on demand via streaming services through various providers. And that might be a cable company. It might be a content platform. It might be, you know, whatever. Now, there's a whole conversation we could have about that, about how the way we access media has really shaped the business of media. Uh, it's it, what the pandemic has done that even more so, right? Because you have movie theater uh, or movie studios, rather, like Warner Brothers, choosing to release films both in theaters and on streaming platforms at the same time through the necessity of conditions brought about by the pandemic. But that, again, is going to reinforce this new model of media distribution 
And that in turn has meant that a lot of people just don't worry about HDCP anymore because our, our the way we access stuff has changed so much. However, even with this approach, you might occasionally have some downsides. Like for example, and this is from my own personal experience, you could discover something that you really like that's on a streaming service, but then eventually the service or the studio behind the content chooses not to renew the license to stream that content. And so the content leaves the streaming service and you no longer have access to it. Obviously, if you purchased a DVD or a Blu-ray, you would have access to that content for as long as the disc was readable and you had a compatible player that could access the media. This, by the way, is a, a big problem that goes well beyond just home theaters. There's this whole issue of the way we record stuff and the way we access it can limit and and create a, a, a limited shelf life for content if we don't transfer that to newer types of media. Anyway, this happened with me with a British sketch show called That Mitchell and Webb Look. Netflix had it available once upon a time. I absolutely loved it. It became like my go-to. Even after I'd seen every episode, I would go back and watch them. Eventually, however... Uh, Netflix lost its license, like the license expired, it was not renewed, and so the program left Netflix's US service, and I found myself unable to watch it. At least, I was unable to watch it legally. <laughs> there are illegal ways to do it, but I don't really want to do that. I'd rather like do it in a way that supports the show. Now, the content's region locked, and at least the last time I checked, there was no way to access that content in the United States. Like, the the DVDs and Blu-rays are all region locked, so I can't get a U.S. region version of that. There's no U.S. streaming version of it, as far as I know. I mean, it may have changed since the last time I checked, but that gets into region locking. That's another conversation that we should probably have in the future, but I'll leave it for now. And let's conclude with a quick word about cable quality. I touched on this earlier, but I thought think it's really good to, to cover in more detail. Now, I don't see it as being as big a discussion point these days in home theater circles as it used to be, but at one time there were numerous companies claiming that their high-tech, super expensive cables would provide a superior experience compared to cheaper cables on the market. And for the most part, those claims were rubbish. Uh, there were plenty of tests that showed that the claimed benefits were either not present or were imperceptible. But let's talk about why cable quality matters to a point. Now, apart from whether or not the cable is carrying the specific type of signal you want to carry, you do have some other things that you need to know about. So when electricity flows through a conductor, as we mentioned with electromagnets, it creates a magnetic field. This is one of those basic features of electromagnetism. So if a cable carrying electricity has poor insulation or shielding around that cable, that can mean a couple of things. One, the cable could cause interference in other nearby cables because you have induction, right? If you bring a conductor close to a fluctuating magnetic field, that will induce electricity to flow through that conductor. So if you've got a bunch of cables sitting next to each other, then it's possible for you to have interference between those cables. Like, signals traveling through one cable could interfere with the signals traveling through a neighboring cable. If 
the shielding and insulation is not sufficient. Same thing can happen with um, speaker wires, by the way. If you've ever had, like, say, really cheap desktop speakers, I notice this all the time with, with those because they typically had very cheap wires. Then maybe your phone goes off and you start hearing this weird digital chatter through your desktop speakers. That's because they're getting interference from the radio signal that's going to your phone and it's playing out over the speakers like they're they're interpreting that as signals that are being sent to the speakers themselves. So you want to make sure you have decent shielding on your cables to avoid interference. Now obviously with home theaters you're dealing with tons of cables even if you're just sticking primarily with HDMI and speaker cables. So it means you do want to have decent cables that have good shielding to prevent any interference between the two. Otherwise it's going to affect your viewing or listening experience. Most modern cables have adequate shielding. You're fine. So you're usually okay unless you're buying the super, super duper cheap cables. But, you know, you definitely don't need to go with premium high-end gold-cladded cables. You're probably not going to see any benefit from that. There are other elements that are important with cables as well, such as electrical resistance that could theoretically impact your experience and make it slightly less ideal. Uh, if your setup means that you're using really long cables, because I don't know, maybe you've got your entertainment nexus system set up in one room and then all the way across the house, you've got the TV. I don't know why you would ever do that, but if you do have to run really long cables, then electrical resistance can actually come into play. You might need a uh, a thicker cable in order to have less electrical resistance over that distance. But most of the time, it's not going to have any perceptible impact on your experience. For most of us, standard cables will serve just fine because the loss due to electrical resistance will be negligible. Uh, and if you're using optical audio cables, then you don't even have to worry about interference because those are using fiber optics and light. They're not using electricity and conductors. However, they do become less efficient over longer distances. So if you are having your TV on the opposite side of the house from your receiver and you're running optical cables between the two, for some reason, it would be a less than ideal experience. Um, bottom line, if you're buying a reputable company's cables and if you're, you, you know, you're making sure that whichever cables you're buying are ones that can actually carry the signals that the rest of your system depends upon, you should be fine. There are purists out there who will disagree with me. They will say, no, 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 you need to get this specific brand and these specific uh, components. But usually we're talking about performance differences that are imperceptible to anything other than super sensitive electronic equipment. And since, as far as I know, you are not sensitive electronic equipment, you should be fine. Okay, that concludes our epic series on the basics of home theater. Uh, I know clearly I did not go through and start naming out specific brands and specific models of, uh, of components and such, because I think a lot of that comes down to personal taste. Like what features do you want? What's already part of your system? You know, maybe you want to have a universal remote that works with stuff. You want to make sure that your universal remote is going to support whichever components you have. Otherwise, there's no point having it. It's just going to be an extra remote that you'll have to have in in line with a ton of others. So because of that, and because of the very subjective nature 
of what one person thinks of as being a superior experience. It didn't make much sense to go into that. I mean, I did not talk about like the Xbox and the PlayStation, but those those are the two leading consoles on the market. So that's why I talked about those. There are other types of ports like video ports that I didn't really talk about, like DVI, but they also are not really heavily used these days uh, unless you're doing something like connecting your computer to your television. Um, But for like the basic stuff that we think of for a home theater, I didn't think they were really important. I hope you enjoyed the series. I hope you've learned something. Uh, I hope you feel better about whatever purchasing choices you might have made so far for your home theater system, including, you know, like, oh, should I have sprung more money for super fancy cables? Probably not. Again, unless you're in one of those more extreme situations. And um, yeah, this was a fun one to do, a fun series to go down. And I'll probably do some more related stuff, like I'll talk more about uh, DRM and I'll talk more about the nature of how we access and consume media and how that has changed and how that has shaped technology, because that's a big part of it. But in the meantime, if you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW. This has been a very long episode, and I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 